Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity just to simply hear the passage that Christian just read for us because this lays the groundwork for where we're going in Luke chapter 19 in these next moments. Lord, throughout the Bible, you have made the commitment uh, that you want not only to be an omnipresent God, but you want to be a God who dwells with his people. And so I ask, Lord, that you would press that truth home in all of its multifaceted power and beauty to us this morning. Help us as Christians to read the Bible with Jesus right at the center of that promise and then echoing out into all of the appropriate applications of our life. This is a powerful, life-altering truth if it gets a hold of us. So come and, and press it into our lives in a meaningful way, I pray, for the glory of Jesus and for the upbuilding of your church and for the ingathering of all of your sheep, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This time, it is my privilege to invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 19 beginning in verse 41. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 41, and if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seat in front of you, today's sermon text can be found on page 879 in the red Bibles. 879 in the red Bibles. So Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. Well, 3,000 years ago, Solomon stood before the altar of God at the dedication of the first temple in Jerusalem. His, his hands were in the air, his palms were outstretched toward heaven, and he prayed, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? That's 1 Kings 8.27. And in that moment, that's a rhetorical question, but in that moment, Solomon asked the Lord a profound theological question that is also rooted in a deep biblical truth. The deep biblical truth that Solomon is circling is the doctrine of divine omnipresence. Divine omnipresence. In other words, God's all-everywhereness. The God who made all that is, is also present with all that he has made. And so in Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24, the Lord asks three questions to get at this truth. He says, am I a God at hand and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? And in one of the more memorable moments of the poetry of King David, we read in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Even there your right hand shall hold me. You stop to think about it, it's, it's a spectacular reality. It's, it's one of my favorite biblical doctrines, the omnipresence of God, the all-everywhereness of God. The God who spoke the universe into being with his word is present at every point in this universe with his whole being. He's omnipresent. But to return to Solomon's question, 
Solomon knows the divine omnipresence. In his prayer at the dedication of the first temple, Solomon's not asking the Lord to be omnipresent. He assumes that he is. What Solomon's asking is something far more profound. It's if God's, if God's all-everywhereness was not stunning enough, what Solomon asks in 1 Kings 8.27 is this, will an omnipresent God make his dwelling here on the earth? Now that's a different question. And frankly, it'd be a presumptuous question had he not confirmed to David, his father, that indeed he, he would do just that. An imperfect analogy might be that all of us at Mound Free Church uh, live in the upper Midwest, but we all make our home in the broader west metro of Minneapolis. It's the difference between presence and, and residence, between where we happen to be and where we want and desire to be. It's the difference between going to your job and going to your cabin. These are slightly different experiences. So Solomon's question at the dedication of the first temple is as rich as they come. Now, the Bible's answer to Solomon's question is an unequivocal yes. The God who created the world and everything in it desires to be in relationship with His creation. And this is made all the more striking by the fact that every one of us, none of us accepted, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from God's grace, we consider God's omnipresence and His desire to dwell here an intrusion into our space into our lives we are high-handed rebels underneath his omnipresent rule and yet the storyline of scripture makes it plain as day that for some reason that doesn't deter him from coming after us he wants to know us walk with us and dwell with us if you were depressed to come up with the single thickest uh, thickest thread of theology woven into the tapestry of the Bible, you'd come close if you chose the theme of the dwelling place of God. Think about it. From, from the Garden of Eden to the Ark of Noah to the land of Canaan and to the tabernacle and then to the temple, the Bible bends over backwards to chase this theme of the dwelling place of God from Genesis to Malachi. Now, in Jesus' day, there was a temple that stood in Jerusalem, but it was not the same one that Solomon built. Solomon's temple, which lasted nearly 500 years, was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies in 586 B.C. But some 70 years later, after the exile, a fresh cornerstone was laid by Ezra and Nehemiah in their day for a new temple. We refer to that temple today as the second temple. It's a structure that would last for another 500 years, from the early 5th century B.C. until its destruction in A.D. 70. Now, like the Garden of Eden, and the Ark of Noah, the land of Canaan, the tabernacle, and the first temple, the second temple was the dwelling place of God. But it pointed beyond itself to the true and better one to come. That's the big idea today. The second temple was, it was the dwelling, it was the living room of God. It's the dwelling place of God. But it pointed beyond itself to the true and better one that's to come. You may be asking yourself, okay, how does a sermon about a building that's been demolished for 2,000 years have any sort of relevance to my life here in the year 2018? And even if you're not asking that question at this point, that's the one that I'm going to seek to answer you should be asking that question. 
You should be asking, how is a sermon about a building that's been demolished for 2,000 years relevant to my life? Well, this morning we're going to have three exhortations, three 21st century exhortations rooted in what the Bible says about the first century temple, or the second temple, as we call it. So three 21st century exhortations rooted in what the Bible says about the first century temple. First point today. Repent. Because the second temple was erased. Repent. Because the second temple was erased. Let's set the scene. As far as the text of Scripture in front of us is concerned, absolutely no time has elapsed between last week's sermon text and this one. Last week we studied the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. As you may recall, we sought to come underneath that text. We learned that the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago reminds us still today that Jesus Christ is King. He's king. And furthermore, that Jesus' supremacy and authority make him sovereign over all our suffering and worthy of all our worship. Well, the mood of this passage is celebrative, it's festive, it's jubilant for sure. So it's a, suffice it to say that everything that Luke records for us up to the point of verse 41 leaves us completely unprepared for what's about to happen. Would you look with me now at our text? I'll read chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. And when he, that's Jesus, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As a backdrop, you might remember earlier this year, it was right around Memorial Day when I preached a sermon from Luke chapter 13 entitled, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And the point of that passage and the sermon from which it was drawn is that if we desire to have Christian convictions about Israel, we are wise to consider Christ's convictions about Israel. And in that passage, we discovered three rock-solid biblical truths that every Christ follower ought to hold about God's ancient covenant people. Now, I would agree that there are far more than three truths that every Christian ought to hold about God's ancient covenant people, but at least these three from Luke 13. First, not all Israel is Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Second, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. And then third, one day all Israel will be saved. Those three truths are manifestly presented throughout the pages of Holy Scripture, specifically in Luke 13. We can say more than those truths, but anything less than that borders on irresponsibility. And the responsibility that we have as Christians is to speak the truths of God's Word, of course, but on every topic, but to speak it with unmistakable clarity, especially as it relates to, to controversial and unpopular topics at any cultural moment. That is uniquely our responsibility. Now, what Jesus says and does here in verses 41 to 45 is, is absolutely remarkable. 
in the midst of his so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, all of his disciples are cutting loose, aren't they? They are publicly exalting and extolling Jesus as the Christ. He's their long-awaited Messiah. The Pharisees are agitated, but they're back on their heels because there's nothing that they can do. The crowd is swelling, and all of them to a person seem to be affirming Jesus as their coming king. The one that will ride into the city gates and assume the throne of David and begin his work of throwing off the Roman occupation and take his place on the throne as the rightful ruler of Israel. And yet, verse 41 says that when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. The word Luke uses here for wept is not some mild whimpering. It's it's far stronger than that. This is out and out sobbing. It's a very, very strong verb. Jesus is wailing. Why? Because he knows precisely what they're going to do, despite their cheers. Just as he predicted in Luke 18, 31 to 33, when he said to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. Now, of course, Jesus knows that he will rise, so it's not ultimately his own suffering and death that's so disturbing for him. That's not really what he's mourning here. As we survey verses 42 to 44, we learn that he was far more concerned for them than he is for himself. It's not what their rejection means for him that's got him so upset, but it's what their rejection of him means for them. It means their utter destruction. 19th century preacher Alexander McLaren put it this way, We see the sorrowing king plunged into bitter grief in the very hour of his triumph. But Christ's sorrow does not hinder his judgments. The woes which wrung his heart, he will nevertheless inflict on his people. That's exactly right. We go so far, go on to hear Jesus speak in verses 43 and 44 of what can only be described as a siege, right? an ambush, an an advance, a military aggression of some kind that's going to come upon Jerusalem. And it's of cataclysmic proportions. Listen once again. It's a prophecy. Verses uh, 43 to 44. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And history records not less than 40 years later that in the spring of A.D. 70, the Roman emperor Titus led some 50,000 Roman conscripts to Jerusalem, and they leveled the city. Leveled the city is a, is a verb with not enough description to it. Uh, as if to add insult to injury, the destruction of the second temple in 70 A.D. began on the very anniversary of the destruction of the first temple in 586 B.C. And during the siege, some 500 Jewish leaders were crucified. Can you imagine that? 
Jewish historian Josephus estimates that before it was all over, upwards of 1.1 million Jews lost their lives, children included. They were slaughtered in the fall of Jerusalem. And though through the miraculous providence of God, there are more than 8 million Jews living in Israel today with about a million or so in broader uh, urban Jerusalem, the prophecy of verse 44, that not one stone would be left upon another, that's true to this day. Jesus was undoubtedly speaking of the stones of the second temple when he said not one stone would be left upon another. And while the, the western wall or the, the wailing wall, as we call it sometimes today, is still largely intact, the western wall was never a part of the temple proper. The western wall was a a retaining wall. It was built by Herod the Great hundreds of years after the second temple was completed. It's not a part of the temple proper. But so far as the temple is concerned, that's gone. And it's been gone for the better part of 2,000 years, just as Jesus prophesied. You say, well, thanks for the history lesson, but what's the point? My point is that what Paul warns first century Gentile Christians of in Romans 11, is the same thing that God would warn Gentile Christians of today in the 21st century. In this context, branches are the Jews and the wild olive shoot is us, Gentile Christians. And here's what Scripture says in Romans 11:17 and following to folks just like us. But if some branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. And that's the point for us today. Although Paul wrote those words several years prior to the leveling of the temple, which he did not live to see, God did not spare 1.1 million Jews in the destruction of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that there's no temptation that's overtaken Israel that's not common to each and every one of us. What on earth would possess us to insist on our salvation, even by grace through faith in Jesus, when deep, ingrained, unrepentant patterns of sin remain in our lives? Pride, or envy, or greed, or sexual sin, or substance abuse, or sinful anger, or gossip, even the fear of man as it relates to your witness among folks who don't know Christ this upcoming Advent season. Even the fear of man. Um, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, the Apostle John lists those who will not participate in the New Jerusalem, and the cowardly are at the head of the list. So the second temple was the dwelling place of God, but it pointed beyond itself to the true and better one that was to come. First century, first 21st century exhortation rooted in what the Bible says about the first century temple, repent because the second temple was erased. We, we ought not 
to remain comfortable with the fact that Israel remains largely in unbelief today. Second point. Second, second, second 21st century exhortation rooted in what the Bible says about the first century temple. Number two, remember the second temple was emptied. Remember, the second temple was emptied. Do you look with me at the next two verses here? Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I hope you see the deliberate nature of what Jesus is saying and doing here in verses 45 and 46. In 41 to 44, Jesus spoke of the future destruction of the inhabitants of Jerusalem in general and the destruction of the temple in particular. Not one stone to be left upon another. And now we're going to see the temple emphasized several more times throughout the end of Luke's gospel, particularly over the next few chapters, even in verse 47 of this chapter. But what Luke's doing here is, is what he's doing with the arranging of the material, far more to the point is what Jesus is doing here with his proximity to and activity inside the temple. Now this is, this is a famous account, right? It's one of the most intense moments in Jesus' ministry. What's going on here? Jesus is clearly disturbed, but we need to see precisely what it was that got him so worked up. Verse 45 speaks of those who sold in the temple. You see that? Well, who sold what? Who are they? Well, according to the other gospel accounts, Luke doesn't give us a whole lot here, but, but these are money changers. They were also sellers of oxen and pigeon and sheep. Why are they selling these animals? Well, it's, it's Passover. Each of these animals were the objects of sacrifice. Now, the Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire to worship at the time of Passover, and it was totally impractical for them to bring their animals for sacrifice with them along the way. And so this was simply a, a matter of convenience. They would offer animals to be purchased right there before they would head into worship. That's not the problem. And the money changers are also present to provide a service. Again, these people are from, from different parts of the Roman Empire. They're uh, from all over the Mediterranean. They've come for this, this holy day, and the Mosaic Law prescribes a temple tax that they're going to pay. The, the half-shekel tax, as it was called, was standard operating procedure. That needed to be paid in a coinage that not every last person had if they were traveling from a distance, and so the money changers are there to help them get the right coinage so they can pay the tax. That's not the problem either. Both of these services are, are fitting and they're of significant convenience to the Jewish worshipers. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is twofold. First, as you might imagine, all of the, the animals present in the temple courts made a loud racket. Made the temple sound like a, a great big farm packed with animals. And the money changers on hand, now you have an added complication of something that feels like stockbrokers on the floor. So it's like Barnum and Bailey meets Wall Street right there in the temple courts. Speaking of the chaos of the animal sellers and the money changers, one author I read said their presence created a carnival-like atmosphere in the temple courts. 
So what does Jesus say to them in verse 46? My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. That phrase weds together two different Old Testament passages. The first comes from Isaiah 56, verse 7. And the second comes from Jeremiah 7, 11. Perhaps you spotted it when it was read for us just a few moments ago. In any case, the text in verse 45 says that he drove out those who sold. It isn't that this activity is taking place. It's where this activity is taking place. Instead of prayer, the temple is becoming a place of peddling. This could have been and should have been done outside the temple courts. One resource I read compared this to to ticket scalpers, uh, not outside the venue, but inside ticket booths at an event venue, or perhaps roaming the corridors of a facility. This is a problem. And the second problem with all of this is related to a statement that Jesus made in a parallel passage in, in Mark eleven seventeen, where Jesus asks, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Now Luke doesn't give us that piece, but Mark does. A house of prayer for all nations. Now archaeologists' best reconstructions of the temple would suggest to us that the the money changers and the animal sellers would have located themselves right inside the court of the Gentiles. The only place in the entire temple complex where non-Jews were allowed to come and worship. And if the one place where Gentiles were permitted was not accessible to them, what's the only thing that a Gentile could conclude coming to worship on the Passover? I'm not welcome here. That's likely what made Jesus' blood boil more than anything else. He is furious. The Jews have completely missed who he is, and now they're keeping out the Gentiles as well. New Testament commentator Andreas Kostenberger writes that this move by the Jews was insensitive at best and evidence of religious arrogance at worst. So what's the application here for them? Well, that his house would be filled with contrition, not commerce, And also that all people would have access to the dwelling place of God. All people, not simply the Jewish people. What's the application here for us? Do we not let visiting missionaries set up their booths in Fellowship Hall? Do we not let our our kids sell their magazine subscriptions on Sunday mornings? Would that be the application? Yes, if this were God's temple, which it's not. 2117's Commerce Boulevard is not God's temple. So where is God's temple today? Well, that brings us to our final point this morning, where most of the application can be found. So let's just go there. Second, 21st century exhortation, rooted in what the Bible says about the first century temple. Remember, the second temple was emptied. Third, 21st century exhortation, rooted in what the Bible says about the first century temple. Rejoice. The second temple is eclipsed. Rejoice. The second temple is eclipsed. Eclipse. So first, repent. The second temple was erased. Second, remember the second temple was emptied. Third, rejoice the second temple is eclipsed. Look with me at our text once more, verses 47 and 48. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Don't you love that last phrase of verse 48? All the people were hanging on his words. Once more, notice the prominence of the temple. 
in Luke's telling of the story here. Verses 41 to 44 speak of the future destruction of the temple. Verse 46, we read of the cleansing of the temple. And now here in verses 47 and 48, now that Jesus has emptied the temple, he's going to fill it. He's going to fill it with his word and with his own presence. God will fill the temple again. His words upon which, according to verse 48, all the people were hanging. So clearly Jesus is making a major league statement here about the temple. First by prophesying its destruction. Second by addressing its its desecration. And now in effect by signaling its, its rededication. That's what I would call this. So rededication is the true dwelling place of God in Jesus who is the true dwelling place of God. The temple will be erased. It's been emptied and now it's being eclipsed. What the Apostle John hints at in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh or made His dwelling among us, He tabernacled among us, what He hints at in 1.14, He comes right out and makes plain in His version of this story in John 2.19-22. Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us, but He was speaking of the temple of His body. For when He was Raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So let's, let's focus for a few moments on, on application. What do we do with this as we leave the sanctuary today for a week of mission? Well, the Bible clearly states that Jesus himself, no longer the Jewish temple, Jesus himself is the true dwelling place of God. Think about what he tells the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 when he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming and now is here when people will worship neither on that mountain nor in this mountain in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. When He comes, He'll he'll tell us everything. He looks her right in the eye and He says, Woman, I who speak to you am He. You're looking at the temple. So He's the true and better dwelling place of God. Jesus is the true and better Eden. He's the true and better ark. He's the true and better tabernacle. And He's the true and better temple. But the Bible goes further. This is what is of great concern for us today. Because the New Testament explicitly promises that as many of us who have been joined to Jesus by grace through faith in Him, we don't simply come to God through Jesus as the true dwelling place of God, as the true temple. We do. But also that if you know Jesus, God has come to dwell in you. Not only in the Savior Himself, but if you know Jesus, you are indwelt by God's Spirit. So much so that Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. This is cause for serious wonder and reflection. The temple's been eclipsed. And one of the ways that's happened is that the third person of the Trinity has taken up residency in your life. 
Your very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God owns you doubly. He created you, so He has creator rights over you, but He's redeemed you, so He's bought you. He owns you twice as your creator and your redeemer. So live a life of holiness in your body. Your body is not made for sin, but for sanctification. Secondly, the New Testament explicitly tells us that not only are each of our bodies a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the church family, this is one that flies under the radar, the church family, when we gather, we ourselves are a temple of God. Well, again, not, not 2117 Commerce Boulevard per se, but the people of God when we gather, we who comprise the church. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says that we the people that comprise the church are referred to as God's building. We are God's building. And then Ephesians 2 and also in 1 Peter 2, this reality is unpacked in terms of temple language. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5, just a few verses before our fighter verse that we memorized for last week, says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now, there's no question here that although Peter doesn't use the T word here, the temple word, that's precisely what he means. We are a temple. That's an incredible portrait of the church. We individually, as we are indwelt by him, our bodies are temples, but even more so when we gather, like this, as we gather as a church, the temple is here. More of him is here. The implications of this, both for the nearness of the Lord when we worship and when we preach and teach and counsel are absolutely profound. I'm surprised the roof doesn't blow off this building every time we worship as the temple of the living God. We as Christ's people are being built together as a temple. And finally, as we look ahead, not only are our bodies the temple of God, not only are we the temple of God as we gather together, but in the future there are going to be future iterations of the temple the Scripture speaks of. During the tribulation, the years of the tribulation, the Jews will seek to and succeed in erecting a third temple on the current Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Daniel 9, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2 all require it. They demand it. And though we don't know when it will be, take it as someone who has visited the Temple Institute in Jerusalem just outside the Western Wall, and I see a guy nodding his head here, there are strains of conservative Judaism that are ready. Everything is ready for the temple, except for the temple itself. All of the furniture is prepared. Guy and I have even seen a, 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 life, a life-size golden menorah uh, pitched in pure gold that's under bulletproof glass that's right outside the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I can show you pictures of it if you want after the worship gathering. They are ready to move it into the third temple. Now, it'll take a little more than persuasion to convince the devout Muslims who own the Temple Mount right now to let that happen. But I have every conviction that is precisely what the Antichrist is going to be able to achieve when he appears. He will pull off a covenant between Islam and Israel that will allow for the construction of a third temple. And yet beyond the third temple, beyond the tribulation, the book of Ezekiel describes another temple you've read to the end of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, yet another temple that's going to be built. We understand that this one will exist during the millennial reign of Jesus, during the future kingdom of Christ on this earth. 
But that's not even the final installment of the temple. The greatest one of all is the one we read about in Revelation chapter 22, verses 15 to 17. It describes the dimensions of the holy city, New Jerusalem. And wouldn't you know it, but the measurements of the holy city, the New Jerusalem, are a perfect cube. And they are scaled to reflect the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's very presence dwelt in the first two temples. The point being that one day, in the new heaven and new earth, the the new Jerusalem itself will be the holy of holies. Not just in our bodies, not merely as we gather as the church, God's people, but quite literally everywhere we turn in heaven one day. One day, heaven and earth will collide and God will dwell in us and among us and around us forever and ever. I'd love to keep going, but we need to land this plane. That's a sneak peek into what's coming one day. But let's review. Second temple was the dwelling place of God, but it pointed beyond itself to the true and better one that's to come. So three 21st century exhortations and what the Bible says about the first century temple. Number one, repent. Repent, because the second temple was erased. If God did not spare the Jews, how much less would he spare us? If someone was put to death on the evidence of two or three witnesses for setting aside the law of Moses, Hebrews says, how much would he put aside? Would he, would he destroy someone who tramples under their feet the blood of Jesus? So repent. The second temple was erased. Secondly, remember, the second temple was emptied. And third, rejoice. The second temple is eclipsed. So friends, the, the storyline, this storyline of Scripture, And the storyline of Scripture is one of indomitable hope. The dwelling place of God in the Bible and in this world because of Jesus just gets better and better and better. Because if you know Christ, it will be better. But only if you know Him. So may I invite you, on behalf of our King this morning, if you do not have a saving relationship with God through Christ today, to come to Him. Come to the temple. Come to the dwelling place of God by grace through faith. Turning from your sin. Repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus. If you want to know what it means to rest in Him and to hope in Him and to worship Him and follow Him all your days, please come and talk to me. I'll be in the back. Or come to talk to Pastor Aaron. He'll be here up front after the benediction. He'd love to talk with you to help you begin to take your first steps with Jesus this morning. And for those of us here this morning who do know him, may Christ dwell in the temple of your body, resulting in greater degrees of holiness. May Christ dwell in the temple of this gathered people in this church with greater increasing power into the days ahead and greater persuasion toward unbelievers that are all around us here in our mission field. And one day, may Christ, the true and best temple of all, come to reign in this earth and on into eternity in such a way that the new Jerusalem, heaven and earth itself, will become the holy of holies. The second temple was the dwelling place of God, but it pointed beyond itself to the true and better one to come. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we step back and we see the sweep of Holy Scripture from Eden to the New Jerusalem, we realize that all of it turns on 
Jesus, who is the ultimate dwelling place of God. You're the true Eden. You're the true ark. You're the true tabernacle, the true temple. And yet you are so gracious and so full, so brimful of God that when we come into your orbit and are joined to you by grace through faith, that Spirit of God spills over into each one of us and every Christian becomes a temple. Our own bodies, Lord, may we use our bodies for righteousness, for the mission this week to be and make disciples of Jesus. Make us a holy people. And as we gather, may we know more of the dwelling of God among us than we could ever know separately. May we gather over and over and over again, if for nothing more than to experience more of God's indwelling power. And Father, as we look to the days ahead, we recognize we don't know your timetables. Only you, Father, ultimately are the ones who has set these things and will set these things into motion. But we look for the day of the third temple being built in Jerusalem. We look forward beyond that to the millennial temple in the kingdom. And above all, we thank you that one day all of creation will become the most holy place. How grateful we will be. I pray that we would prepare for that day by growing in greater degrees of holiness ourselves. Thank you, Lord, not only for the temple of our bodies, but for the temple of this church and the temple one day that this world will become. In Jesus' name, amen.